Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. from Acts 13, starting with verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the peoples, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Please be seated. Our study through the first half of the semester, we've gone through Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, where Isaiah's volume could be broken down into two sections, 1 through 39 and then 40 through 66. But what we've covered so far could be summarized with two words, judgment and hope. Well, during this season of Advent, our desire is to show how the hope that Isaiah wrote about for the nation was actually for the nations, plural, and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Our study this morning is in Acts 13, and so if you're not there already, please turn to Acts 13 or find it on your device. But we're jumping right into the middle of Acts, so let's get our bearings a little bit. We know that Luke wrote two-volume set, the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles. 
So let's look where Luke ended in the Gospels and where he picks up in Acts to see the connection. In Luke 24, verses 44 through 49, read this. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's how he ends the Gospel of Luke. And he picks up in Acts, chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So where Luke ended, he picks up an Acts. And where we're at in Acts 13, we're actually in this section where the gospel is advancing just as Luke said it would, just as Jesus told them to do. And we find ourselves where the gospel's advancing to the ends of the earth. And so if we were to throw a map up on the screen, which I, I didn't do, we're going to find ourselves in Antioch of Pisidia, not to be confused with Antioch and Syria. So we think north of you know, Jerusalem is, is Antioch. That's where they're launched from, Paul and Barnabas and company. But then they actually come to Antioch and Pisidia, which is in Asia Minor. And so briefly what we're going to be covering in the text here this morning is that you're going to see a historical overview that Paul gives, followed by a gospel proclamation, and then ultimately people will respond to that one of two ways. And so in verses 13 through 25, we have this epic history lesson that Paul gives. So Paul and company, they make their way to Antioch, and what they're doing when they arrive is they begin getting familiar with the city. And they get familiar enough with the city to find that the city has a synagogue. And so on the Sabbath day, that's where they find themselves. They go to the synagogue to worship. Now, it's evident that Paul and Barnabas and the group there, they're visitors. And so I have no idea what the process is like or what the protocol is to ask a visitor to get up after the reading of the text and share. It would have been like after... Alyssa reads the text. Now, if any of you have a word of encouragement, you know, we, we, we run and give a message. Oh, there's a visitor. Let's have them speak. I, that's what's going on here. And I don't know what the process is for that, why they would do such a thing. I don't know if they're aware of Paul's resume as a Pharisee. I don't know if they've talked with them beforehand, but they end up slipping him a note and they invite him to say something without knowing what he's going to say, without vetting him in any way. Regardless, even though I don't know the process, text is, is silent on that, Paul gets up to share. So he shares this word of encouragement. Now, if you are a, a guest speaker and you're at this new group of people who don't know you at all, what's the first thing that you should do? Tell a joke, right? No, I, I, maybe, I don't know, it may fall flat. 
But your goal is to establish rapport with the audience. And so that's what Paul is doing, giving this history lesson. So although the audience may not have known Paul, guess what? Paul knows his audience. He's in the synagogue, and he is very much aware of who they are and what they're like. So he's familiar with life in the synagogue, and so now he begins to draw them in with this epic historical narrative that they'd resonate with, right? Beginning with their national pride as the chosen people of God, you can just you can tell that they're they're engaged, they're locking in, they're hanging on his every word. Here's some of the highlight reel of what was read from the text. He talks about how God made them this great nation in the land of Egypt. And then he powerfully led them out, the Exodus. Well, that resonates with them in their history, in their lineage. They're proud of that. God carried them in the wilderness for forty years. He put up with them. He carried them. He provided for them. And then he brings them to the land that he promised. And he destroys these nations. And he gives them this land. And then, after the judges, he brings in this prophet Samuel. And as the people ask for a king, God obliges. And he brings them their first king, King Saul. Now, the first king or president or ruler in every land is important. We have a history. We have a first president. Israel had a first king, King Saul. And then it moves on to King David, who the nation really rallies around. You may have a first, but then you have a best, one that everyone kind of gravitates toward and recognizes, and that's King David. And of King David, it is said that he is a man who is after God's heart. And it's from this king, from his offspring, from David's line, that there would come God's promised Savior to Israel. And Paul says that has been fulfilled in Jesus. And then he speaks of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. Baptist was not his last name, but he's John the Baptizer. And He was the forerunner of Christ. He pointed to Jesus. We saw this last week. We considered John. And if John truly is the forerunner, then that means Jesus is truly the Messiah. And that's what we looked at last week from the text. So up to this point, Paul's been building rapport with his audience. He's been sharing of their history, things that would promote in them this this national sense of pride things that they would resonate with. It would connect him to his audience. And he's leading them through their rich legacy. And he reminds them of the Messiah. God has promised that one day there would be a Messiah. The consolation, the hope of Israel. There would be one who would fulfill all the hopes and dreams of this nation. They were waiting for this individual. Well, now with the stage set, Paul's about to turn the corner. He's about to share with them the glorious news of the gospel. Well, this glorious news of the gospel comes with a dark side. It comes with a black eye in Israel's history, and this is what he's about to identify. In verses 26 through 43... 
Paul's about to set the hook, but before he does, he refocuses his audience. He's reconnecting with them. Remember, he started with very similar language when he stands up. He says, men of Israel, in verse 16, you who fear God, listen. I'm calling you to pay attention to this. We're on the same page. Well, in verse 26, he refocuses them. He gets their attention once again. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those of you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. So what is this salvation? You know the rich history that we have as God's chosen people, right? You know what the scriptures have to say, the law and the prophets and the Psalms. They all remind us of the Messiah. You're aware of that. And yet with all of these advantages, we somehow missed it. This nation had everything at their disposal, and yet somehow they missed their Messiah. Now you can imagine that's not necessarily popular news at this point. So they are, I'm, I'm visualizing this because I haven't seen the, the movie of this thing played out, but I can imagine them sitting on the edge of their seat as they're hearing their history, and they're resonating with that, and it's, it's speaking to them, and, and their, their pride swelling up, and Yes, they're identifying with the speaker and they're being encouraged by Paul's words. And now he says, even though we've had all these advantages, we've somehow missed it. Wait, time out. What? Well, listen to what Paul says in verse 27 and following. In verse 27, he says, we've failed to recognize him. Remember that long-anticipated Messiah, the one that we're waiting for, the one that God's promised? We failed to recognize him. Why? Because we failed to understand the prophets. We missed our Messiah because we failed to understand the scriptures. You got to imagine, the text is read every Sabbath, week in, week out. They've studied this thing. They knew this. They sat under the, the hearing of the text week after week, month after month, year after year, and somehow the Messiah shows up and we know nothing about it? Or the Messiah shows up and we've somehow missed him? Man, that must have been heavy to hear. They're trying to process this. They fulfilled, ultimately, this is what he says, they fulfilled what they failed to understand. And they condemned him whom they did not recognize. They fulfilled what they failed to understand, and they condemned him whom they did not recognize. Listen to how John writes in his gospel in chapter 1. The true light, which gives light to everyone, this is verse 9, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the Messiah shows up, and he comes to his own people, and his own people despise and reject him. They don't receive him. They missed their long-anticipated Messiah. And then they did something that probably felt like a knife in their back, as he says, and on top of it, 
you allied with the Romans and had them executed by crucifixion. As a guest speaker, I mean, he's just going at it. He's not holding anything back. And sadly, they did all this, and there was no guilt found in him. And then, when everything was fulfilled, they laid him in the tomb, verse 29. And with anyone else, that would be the end of the story. But God, verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And then for many days, he appeared. And he met with his disciples. And he's told his disciples, now you are witnesses of these things. And so Paul and Barnabas, as they're standing here as witnesses, he says, since we're witnesses of all this, we bring you the good news that what God promised to our fathers, he's now fulfilled to us, his children, by raising Jesus. That's what he communicates in verses 32 and 33. So what God promised, he has fulfilled in Jesus. He raised him from the dead. So even though you, we, had him crucified, he really is our Messiah, and he's not dead. He's risen. All the promises that God has made in the past have now found their fulfillment in the person of Jesus. This is the good news. And then he goes on in the next set of verses, verses 33 through 37, and he's highlighting some different psalms that speak of King David. But King David was only a shadow. These were only kind of about David. The Psalms couldn't fully be fulfilled in David because why? David died. We know where he's buried. We could dig up his bones. I mean, they're still there, right? And he says ultimately that these Psalms are not about King David. These Psalms are about King Jesus. King David was the shadow. King Jesus is the fulfillment, the substance of these Psalms. And this is the good news, that through this man, Jesus, through him, by his death and his resurrection, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and to everyone who believes. You can be freed. This is verses 38 and 39 of the text. You can be freed. That word freed is justified. It is declared righteous. You can be freed from everything that you could not be freed of by the law of Moses. So here's the good news of salvation. Here's the good news of the gospel. There is forgiveness of sins because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's through this one, Jesus, who is our Messiah, that now you can have a right relationship with God. You can be freed. You can be justified even though previously you couldn't be based on the law. What the law could not do, it could not accomplish. It couldn't produce this righteousness in you. It couldn't forgive you of sins. Now, it's all yours through Jesus. This is the good news 
that is shared to them. And then he goes into a warning. He says, hit the pause button here for a second. And he quotes from Habakkuk 1.5. And he says, be careful in how you respond. This is not a popular message. And he warns them against unbelief. In verse 41, he says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. And so he shares all of this with them, and he says, Be careful in how you respond. You're being warned right now. And what was their response? In the text it says, as the people went out, they begged them to come back. Come back next Sabbath. Share more about this. We need to hear more. And many of the Jews and the devout converts to Judaism started following Paul and Barnabas. So the initial sharing of the gospel, sharing of this message was well received. What do you think took place over that entire next week? How do you think people were responding? What do you think was going on leading up to this next Sabbath? Well, for starters, Paul's followers on Instagram and Twitter probably skyrocketed, right? His podcast got the most hits that he's ever gotten. Hashtag good news, hashtag forgiveness of sins, hashtag believe. So word spreading throughout the week. How whatever form that took, I'm sure they didn't have Instagram and Twitter at that point, but word spreading. People are communicating. They're in Antioch and Pisidia. They're in Asia Minor. And the word is going viral, whatever that looked like. And now, next Sabbath comes around, and you've got just astronomical attendance. This is probably the best attendance that they ever had in the synagogue ever. The entire city, it says almost the entire city showed up to hear. Why? Because they were able to book the headline you know, pop star or comedian or athlete. No way. They're coming to hear the gospel. They are coming to hear the good news about this Messiah that somehow we missed it. So now the gospel is going global. In verses 44 through 52, and the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But, When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. How would you think the local leadership should respond? And the masses are coming out. They've, you know, we've never had the kind of attendance that we're having this Sabbath. This is awesome. This is celebratory. We should be excited about this. And they really probably were until they start seeing, wait a second. We see these people all the time in the market, uh, all over the place, and they never come to the synagogue. What gives? I mean, I, I've never heard Paul speak, but we, we clearly have people that we resonate with as speakers more than others. And you have your favorites on podcasts and preachers that you listen to and different things. But it's like, what's going on? Now the local synagogue leaders, the religious leaders are feeling slighted. Their feelings are hurt. So how did they respond to this message? As the crowds start pouring in to hear Paul and Barnabas, they're jealous. And you can imagine them, you know, their smiles turn to folded arms and 
you know, scowls. And they're gazing at these people, and now they're, they're mad. Can you imagine the conversation that happened between the religious leaders? We've got to do something. We've got to figure this thing out. And so how do they ultimately respond? In verse 45, not only were they filled with jealousy, but listen to what that produced. They began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So now they push back. They contradict the message and they revile the messenger. So Paul's on center stage, as it were, and he's sharing the gospel again. And you can imagine that what that would be like now as, you know, if I'm the visitor sharing and Pastor Pat stands up and he starts hurling insults and contradicting. No, wait, what he really means is, you know, and he's interrupting the, the message right now. That would be kind of awkward. We're not used to that, but it would be interesting. And what did Paul and Barnabas do? Well, maybe I should sit down and be quiet. No. What happened was, he said, fine, you don't have to believe this. You don't have to respond in faith to this. But it was necessary that the word of God come to you first as the Jew. And listen to, listen to how he says it. This is like right to the heart. It was necess- This is verse 46. So Paul and Barnabas speak out boldly and say, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Wow. That's a slap in the face. Right? There was two groups of people. There were the Jews and there were everybody else. Who's the everybody else? The Gentiles, the nations, those are working synonyms. You know also working synonyms to Gentiles and nations? Heathen, pagan. Okay, so it's the Jews and it's the pagans. It's the Jews, it's the heathen. It's the Jews, it's us versus them. And the early church had a real struggle and they fought through this quite a bit. And I think it was very difficult if you read some of the other letters like Galatians, like Ephesians. They were always struggling with the Jews versus everyone else mentality, even in the church. Because now the gospel takes down all the things that would divide us and separate us and says, get along, you're one, be unified. Love one another. The Jews always struggled with that. The Gentiles were always on the outside looking in. And now Paul and Barnabas say, hey, fine. Guess what? If you want to reject this message that comes to you first, we're going to go to the nations. That's awesome because I'm included in that. I have no Jewish blood in me that I know of, and I'm very thankful that this message of salvation, that this gospel message has always been intended for the nations. It was through the Jewish nation, but to the nations. The Messiah came through Israel of the offspring of David. That's why Paul hit that in his history. But it's always been intended for us. It's always been meant to go global. So listen to the quote from Isaiah 49 that was read this morning already. Paul says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Remember how Luke's gospel ends and how Acts begins, and now we see that playing out all through Acts of the Apostles? The gospel is advancing. 
from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. We've been in Isaiah. We said, hey, we're going to highlight during Advent season the hope that's on display in Isaiah, and we're going to see the fulfillment in Jesus in the New Testament. Hence, Acts 13 this morning. But listen to the hope that Isaiah promised for the nations. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah eleven ten. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah 42, just a few highlights here. We've had that read this morning and called to worship as well. In verse 1, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is to the Gentiles, to the heathen, the pagan. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And then where Paul quotes in Isaiah 49.6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too light a thing. It's too small a thing. It's not enough. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah's always been promoting that the Messiah and the gospel was going to be for the nations. And when Israel missed their Messiah, now it's being revealed to them that, hey, this message is for you and everyone else. And so when Paul announces, we're going to the nations... How'd the Gentiles respond? Woohoo! This is awesome. This is better than a walk-off home run. This is better than when your team scores a winning touchdown in the last seconds of the game. This is better. This is amazing. They're excited. Verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is awesome. And they lived happily ever after, right? The text continues, and there's tons of pushback. There's opposition. The Jews are jealous now, and they're upset, and they're angry, and they persecute Paul and Barnabas, and they rally other people in the community to persecute Paul and Barnabas and ultimately drive them out of the city. And yet, the gospel continues to spread. Disciples continue to be made. And the gospel spreads throughout the entire region. That's what's going on in verses 50 through 52. Persecution comes, the gospel spreads. But let's circle back to verse 48. We could make this a real rabbit trail. I don't want to, but I think we do have to 
at least mention this reality. In verse 48, it says, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And we're not going to go on the rabbit trail. I would encourage you. I wrote a short article on this. I did want to write about this, though, just a little bit. So go pick that up, and you can read about that a little bit more. But the focus, the emphasis on this entire portion is that people responded to the gospel. How did they respond to the gospel? One of two ways. The responses to the gospel in verses 48 through 52 were that some believed and some rejected. Some responded in faith and some refused to believe. And that belief resulted in rejoicing, glorifying the word of God. The gospel, the good news is spreading. And the disciples are filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. This is worth celebrating in every way. This is a proper response to this glorious message of the gospel. This is the hope that Isaiah prophesied of. This is the season in which we're reminded of the sufficiency of the gospel. And we need to be reminded of this. But there's also people who refused to believe, who rejected this message. They contradicted the message and they reviled the messenger. They refused to believe and they ultimately persecuted the messengers. Why is this gospel so polarizing? Has it stopped being polarizing? Or is it still polarizing today? Why do some joyfully accept this salvation while others vehemently reject it? How can the religious leaders have such darkened hearts when exposed to the glorious light of the gospel? And then these pagans just receive it so freely. Well, in reality, the gospel has always been polarizing. It will always be polarizing. People have a difficult time processing. Here's some of the things that we're just going to focus on from the text that happened in Acts 13, 13 through 52. People have a difficult time processing that they need a savior. They need a rescuer. Verses 23 and 26. Paul is saying that Jesus is that savior, that rescuer. People have a hard time processing that. Why would they need rescuing? Why would they need saving? Why would you need rescuing or saving? People have a difficult time processing that Jesus is that Savior. Why does it have to be Jesus? Why can't it be me? Why don't I have an S on my chest? Why can't I be the one who rescues myself? Why does it have to be him? Jesus is polarizing. They have a hard time processing that they need forgiveness of sins. Verse 38. Who are you to tell me that I'm a sinner? Who are you to speak into my life? I'm a pretty good person by all accounts. I mean, I can point out uh, a million and one people who are worse than me. I'm religious. I'm a pretty good person. I'm, I'm fairly moral in my actions in society. Who are you to call me a sinner and say that I need a Savior? They also have a difficult time processing the fact that they can't accomplish any of this 
by their own merit. That's what verse 39 says. Why can't I just do this by my performance? If, if everything is true and I am a sinner and I need forgiveness and I need this righteousness, then why can't I just do it myself? And Paul said, well, law obedience could never have done that for you, can never justify you, can never free you from this. You need someone outside of yourself. You need a righteousness outside of yourself. And so this morning, as we've walked through this text, we've all been exposed to the glorious light of the gospel. The fact that Jesus is the Messiah, and that through his death and resurrection, we can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. They're ours if you believe. How will you respond? The message just isn't for the immediate audience in Antioch of Pisidia and Asia Minor. But the message is for us today. This good news, this hope, this light to the nations is ours. His name's Jesus. This is a season of hope because we have a message of hope. The hope prophesied by Isaiah was and is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin by his death on the cross. Jesus' promise of eternal life is ours. It's certain because of his glorious resurrection. Jesus provides forgiveness of sins and freedom from which the law could never accomplish. And Jesus invites you to believe that he is the good news. He is the hope of the world. He is the light to the nations. He is the Savior. So what's the response? Maybe you have grown up in the church. Maybe you're here for the first time. Maybe this is the first time you've heard this message. You're like, man, I I don't even know why I'm here. And I showed up this morning and I hear you talking about this. What's your response? There's only two responses. You either believe or you reject this. There's no on the fence. If you're on the fence, you're leaning on the fence from one side or the other. You're leaning on the, you're leaning on the fence from rejecting this message. You know, there's no middle ground here. You either believe this or you don't. Will you believe and receive forgiveness of sins? Being able to be made right with God the Father and experience eternal life? Or will you reject it? Many of you, most of you here, I could probably say, even though this is God's business, I don't know, but you show up week after week, my assumption is you've already responded to this message in faith. You believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, and you would identify with him and say that, yes, he is my Savior. He has rescued me from sin and death. We need to be reminded that our only hope is still Jesus. We don't graduate or move on to something bigger and better now. Oh, yeah, I've got Jesus. Now what? Well, now what is we continue to grow in the grace and knowledge and understanding of what is ours in the gospel and how it impacts our daily life. Two takeaways from this text for those of you who know Christ and who would say, yeah, I believe him. I love this gospel. You know, I haven't told you anything you don't already know. But from verses 38 and 39, if law obedience 
couldn't justify us before the Father, it couldn't free us from sin or declare us right with God, then it most certainly cannot maintain what it could never secure. If we in some way are looking to try harder to do better, to merit, maintain, or earn, we've got to stop it. (laughs) Because Jesus is still our only hope, and nothing we do or don't do can ever undo what he has secured for us. And so now as a consequence, we live. And the fruit of the gospel, the consequence of the gospel, the consequence of believing Jesus, well, here's some takeaways from the text. What is it? In verses 48 and 52, a consequence of the gospel is joy and rejoicing. That's fruit of the gospel in our lives, joy and rejoicing. In verse 48, it's glorifying the word of God. In verse 30 and 49, it's sharing the glorious news of this message, this good hope of the gospel. And in verse 52, it's the filling of the Spirit. All of these are ours because of Jesus. This is all true and on display, and we need to be reminded of it. The joy that we have, the sharing of this message, the filling of the Spirit, all of this is ours because of Jesus. Advent is a season of hope because we have a message of hope for everyone who believes, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it is truly a joy to gather as your people in this place, to be reminded of these truths that we've heard countless times. But it's easy for us to lose sight of it. It's easy for us to miss it. I'm reminded, even as I'm retelling the gospel, it's a story, it's the good news of Jesus for people who already know it. And I'm reminded of the hymn that says, I love to tell the story for those who know it best. They seem hungry and thirsting to hear it like the rest. That is truly our posture this morning. Thank you for this so great of message, this so great of salvation, the glorious hope that is ours for everyone who believes to the nations because of Jesus. So we give you praise for this message. And as we continue to conclude this service with singing praises to you, may you continue to be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.